today on Ag News Daily. We're not giving up on milk, right? We're not giving up on cheese. We did a study a while back on um, the word association, what consumers think as far as ingredients. It's Happy Friday, ladies and gentlemen, here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined by my co-host, Mike Pearson. Good afternoon, Delaney Howell. It is Friday indeed, and I tell you what, we got some great news this morning for both the ag and the broader U.S. economy. Are you referring to the Chinese-related news, Mike? That is one of the stories. China overnight last night said they're willing to waive import tariffs for some soybean and pork shipments from the U.S. Now, we don't know exactly which shipments those are. Uh, Basically, they say there is uh, officially duty exemptions on up to 10 million tons of soybeans and an unknown volume of pork uh, that were offered to importers. So the Chinese government is apparently trying to encourage um, imports of both soy and pork. And uh, this looks like one of the ways they're going to try to do it. Delaney, do you have any more details on this uh, deal? Well, the only other thing that I was going to add to that too, Mike, is just over a week here, December 15th, we could see the U.S. put another round of tariffs on Chinese goods because that's when the next round of tariffs is scheduled by President Trump. And it doesn't sound like he's really made a decision one way or another, but I'm guessing that the Chinese shared this good news with the Trump administration today to hopefully get that off the table. Yeah, this definitely seems like a, uh, oh, I want to say damage control, but that's not the right phrase. I mean, that's, it, it seems yeah. Like it's, yeah, it's kind of a preemptive strike, perhaps, as they try to mitigate the impact of these December 15th tariffs, which, as of right now, are still coming down the pipe. Yes, as of right now, they sure are. That was really the big headline, though, for today, Mike, was what's going on on that front. And like you said there, we don't really know when or what shipments or how soon that's going to happen, but uh, definitely added a little bit of positive sentiment in the markets today. It did. You know, what's interesting is I've been watching the trade throughout the day. It added a lot of positive sentiment at the open. We saw both beans and pork, and really pork, gapped higher at the open after this news was announced. Um, and beans were as much as eight and a half cents higher earlier in the day. A lot of that uh, balloon has kind of fizzled, however, as we've gotten through the day, which, which we'll discuss when we get to prices here in just a little bit. I did have one other piece of news not directly ag-related, but certainly U.S.-related, and that is an incredibly strong jobs number that was announced this morning. Private employers hired 266,000 people this last month. Economists were expecting 180,000, so this was a big win over what economists were predicting. And uh, this has certainly helped uh, the the U.S. stock markets and just U.S. consumer sentiment as a whole. Not only were more jobs filled, but wages also jumped 3.1% over a year ago, and it's those rising wages, Delaney, we talk about this a lot because it's worth talking about, help create that wealth effect, which lets people go out to restaurants and spend dollars on those premium cuts of protein. Absolutely. I just chatted about that this week with the Arkansas group that I was visiting, so hopefully some of them have tuned into the podcast, too. I'm hoping we've picked up a few new Arkansas listeners. We're excited to have you, Arkansans. Welcome to the party. Welcome to the party, indeed. And actually, this is some news that is related. You know, there's some wheat acres in Arkansas, but definitely some wheat acres in Kansas, the Dakotas, and elsewhere across the Great Plains. 
Mike, the Wheat Acres for 2020 could hit a 110-year low, according to some analysts, including Oklahoma State University Extension economist Kim Anderson. They're saying prices are poor and profit is non-existent. And for the past two years, we've seen wheat acres dip to a 100-year low. And so for 2020, acres could challenge that 110-year low as you as we continue to see wheat declining from 2008. 18 to 2019 we saw a five percent decline and so we've really seen wheat drop off pretty substantially here over the past couple of years and 2020 might be another year where we don't see big pushes to plant wheat yeah you know and not surprising like you said Lenny, the trend has been down for some time in the wheat acreage battle there's just been more profitability for corn or sorghum for our friends down in Kansas and other places south and for soybeans. And, you know, wheat has just kind of been the odd man out. The wheat market continues to over, un, excuse me, underperform. And it's, it's called poverty grass for a reason. And uh, I think we're going to continue to see those acres decline. Yeah, it's just so, not, not funny is not the word, but it's just so interesting that when you look at like the Dust Bowl era, kind of pre and post Dust Bowl era, it was like the government was saying, plant as many wheat acres as you possibly can. And now we're seeing people say, eh, don't plant wheat if you can avoid planting wheat, because there are probably more profitable crops to plant at this point. Yep, that's the thing. It's, it's all about that search for profitability and trying to maximize operations. Speaking of profitability, Delaney, an industry that has been seeking profitability for the better part of two years is the ethanol industry. Of course, uh, the Trump administration has come under substantial fire for their EPA issuing so many exemptions to the RFS. Well, it was announced earlier today that the president still sees these partial exemptions to ethanol blending requirements as a key solution to this biofuels debate and the, the policy that's been going on. Uh, we don't know exactly what he's going to do, but uh, the notion that we're going to see these SREs or small refinery exemptions disappear under President Trump, um, I, I don't think is going to happen. Uh, basically, the, the administration is still looking at this and saying, look, okay, we can put an RFS out with 15 billion gallons of corn-based ethanol, and then when the oil industry starts to make its uh, its complaints, well, we'll just grant them exemptions, and that will keep them on board. So they're, they're trying to thread a very tight needle here on this biofuels policy, and I've got a feeling what they're going to end up doing. They're not going to make anybody very happy, and uh, that's a tough way to head into an election year. Yeah, and to add a little bit more news to that, Mike, looking at the biofuels RFS specifically, usually they put out that new renewable fuel volume obligation around Thanksgiving time, but we know they did not do this do that this year. But according to sources telling or chatting with AgriPulse, the EPA is sending that RFS, the Renewable Fuel Standard Rule, mandating those renewable volume obligations for 2020 to the White House's Office of Management and Budget for review as early as today. So we could see that final RVO rule accompanied by a supplemental rule to determine how to account for those small refinery exemptions in 2020 here pretty soon. Hmm, Interesting. But no real deadline on when those uh, that's going to come out. Well, I think it. I think it absolutely has to come out by the end of this year. But they're saying as early as next week we could see that finalized rule published. 
Ah, gotcha, gotcha. Next week. All right, well, we will keep our radars tuned to that frequency, and hopefully we can get some information. Hopefully we can. Um, I'm out of news on this Friday, Delaney. Do you have any other stories mm. you need to bring to our listeners' attention? Well, Mike, I do have one other piece of Friday news. It's maybe not Friday news for the ag industry, but it is interesting news as we continue to watch what's going on in the alternative meat category beyond burgers or beyond meat burger fans can now buy that fake meat in bulk at costco they said Mm. you can buy an eight pack of the beyond meat burger patties for $14.99 they won't be available at all costco locations only in select stores so i'm guessing they won't hit the midwest anytime soon but you know i think this is really interesting because this week when i was in arkansas i always forget that tyson and walmart and a bunch of those big food you know people players in the food industry are located in northwest arkansas and so chatted with a few of the farm bureau folks there that said we love to get you connected to talk to some of those people so keep our fingers crossed but maybe we can talk to some of those bigger people higher up and ask them what is going on when it comes to this front tyson why are you investing in things like the beyond meat burger you know it seems kind of diversification i know but it just seems so counterintuitive doesn't it no i mean they're a protein producer and as much as we don't like to admit it those of us and of course i'm showing my biases here (laughs) coming from the animal ag the animal protein side of the ag industry we don't like to admit it but these Beyond Burgers, Impossible Meat, whatever, these vegan things, these fake meats, are a protein source. And when you look at Tyson, you look at Cargill, you look at a lot of these large-scale protein producers, they're looking at it as an extension of the industry. Maybe this is how we can bring some you know, vegans back into eating greater protein. And maybe some of them will go, hey, yeah. this Beyond Meat Burger is okay, let's try the real thing. Yeah, that's true, but I just talked to a lot of folks that were like, you know, it makes them kind of angry or upset to know that we're producing food and then we're sending it to Tyson or the other places, and then they're in turn investing in these alternative protein industries and not supporting animal agriculture, but yeah, it's just an interesting ordeal. Well, I was just doing some quick back-of-the-napkin math there, Delaney, and you mentioned these are eight packs of burgers. I'm assuming they're quarter-pound burgers, that's Four yes. burgers to a pound, so that's two pounds of burger for 15 bucks is what this stuff is selling for? Yep. Jeez, more money than cents, I tell you what. Mm-hmm. All right, well, that does it for the news segment, right? I believe so. All right, well, let's jump into the markets. Yeah, we got a mixed day today in the markets. I mentioned beans were uh, were up on the day. Wheat was actually up on the day. Corn is mixed. Starting with the corn market, December contract was up a penny at 366.5. March, down a half at 376 and a quarter. Soybeans well off today's highs, but still higher on the day. The January contract up five and a half cents at 889 and three quarters. The March up five and a quarter, finished at 904 even. Looking over at Chicago wheat, December contract up half a penny at 532 and a quarter. The March unchanged on the day, finished up at 523 and three quarters. In livestock strength today in the cattle complex, live cattle December up 27.5 cents at 120.20. 
February up 37.50 to finish the day at 124.97 half. Feeder cattle January big gainer on the day up a dollar even closed at 141.55. The March up 52 and a half to finish at 141.67.50. And in lean hogs a little bit of weakness here in the front months. The de- December was down 45 cents at 61.12.50. The February down two and a half cents to close the day at 67.55. Looking over at the dairy market in class three milk, December contract up eighteen cents, closed at nineteen fifty five. The January up eight, finished the day at eighteen sixty eight. Without further ado, Delaney, why don't you tell us who we're talking to for our interview for today? Well, Mike, the final interview I saved, I think maybe one of the best interviews for last, chatted with Brody Staple, who is a dairy producer for Double Dutch Dairy LLC. That's his own farm. And then he also works with Edge, which is one of the largest dairy cooperatives in the United States. Well, as dairy continues to dominate the headlines, both in news as well as the commodity markets, I'm chatting today with Brody Staple, who is a dairy farmer in Wisconsin and also president of Edge. Brody, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having us. So Brody, tell me a little bit about your dairy operation. So we uh, milk about 230 cows eastern Wisconsin, right off the shores of Lake Michigan, north of Milwaukee there. Um, Sort of a unique situation. I grew up on a dairy farm, left it for many years, and then my brother and I started a dairy seven years ago, uh, right before the big boom of 2014, when life was really great as a dairy farmer. We've been through some rough years now. You know, the light at the end of the tunnel is here. At the end of the year, the milk prices are starting to come up. And um, so as a young dairyman in an industry that's decades and decades, or it's been around forever, um, we're excited about the future. We're optimistic. We're always looking for ways to do things a little bit differently on our dairy at home and um, look forward to producing milk for many years to come. And it is an exciting time. You look at commodity prices, they're touching $20. I mean, this hasn't happened in a while, so it's really exciting time to be a dairy producer. But there are also some things out there that poses a little bit of a risk and a little bit of a concern. And, and just because you're a dairy farmer, I would like to ask your opinion about things like almond milk and these alternative dairy products. Do they have you scared and concerned or is that something that's you're just monitoring and watching, but it's maybe not on your radar yet? So I'll correct you in calling it almond juice, first of all. <laughs> um, so part of our organization, I've been to D.C. several times advocating for uh, mislabeling of dairy products. You know, it's a concern. You know, not everybody will, will get to, you know, we're not giving up on milk, right? We're not giving up on cheese. We did a study a while back on um, the word association and what consumers think as far as ingredients. It's, it's automatically ingrained in a consumer's mind. When they say che- see cheese, they think milk, right? When they see ice cream. And so these people that are developing products that are riding on milk and ice cream and, and cheese and yogurt's good name is quite unfortunate. We're not at all threatened by it. However, we just want truth in labeling. I was reading something the other day that said around the World War II era, the average American consumer was like 47 or 46 gallons of milk, and now it's down to 17. That is so crazy. But how do you go about, I don't know if it's education or what needs to happen, but how do you get people to love milk again? So after World War II, if you went to a grocery store or they probably didn't have gas stations, right, you may have had orange juice and milk in the cooler. Now now you go to a gas station and look at your options, right? There's naturally competition. I think 
uh, the dairy industry has sort of fallen back on innovation and what we can do to make a milk carton more attractive. There are companies, Fairlife came out, right, and, and A2 Milk Company. There's definitely companies out there that are expanding and growing um, unbelievably in the dairy market yet in that space. Um, but, you know, as, as we become more of a society on the go, I think it's important to realize that we want products that are on the go. Nobody wants to take a jug of milk and throw it in the car and take it to work, right? They want a drinkable yogurt. They want a cheese stick. They want anything else, you know, the, the, the cheese crackers. They want stuff that they can throw in their briefcase and, and take on the way to work as, as they're listening to a podcast, right? <laughs> so they don't have time for a bowl of cereal anymore. And we as an industry, I think as processors, have to understand and realize that and be able to adopt and innovate. Absolutely. I still love having a bowl of cereal, so I do my, try to do my part to drink Good. as much dairy as possible. Good. But switching tracks a little bit here, Edge, the Dairy Farmer Cooperative, tell us about that cooperative and how it is different maybe from grain cooperatives or cooperatives that exist in, in other sectors of agriculture. Sure. So uh, Edge Dairy is about uh, Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative. We're about 10-year-old uh, co-op um, we started, there was a group of progressive farmers that came together and wanted to start start their own dairy co-op um, and sort of navigate um, federal policy was, was one of their top concerns. And they wanted to do it independently of some of the other big dairy co-ops that are out there or dairy organizations. So we did that. We started 10 years ago and we've grown. Our business model has been very successful. We've grown to the point now that we are number four in the country in terms of volume of milk that we represent. Um, so it's been a lot of fun to grow with this, this organization, but we, we don't technically touch milk, we don't market milk, but we do represent the milk. So if you're not touching the milk, you're not helping producers get hooked up with retailers or end markets, what are you doing for those group of folks? So on the technical side, we're verifying the milk, the quality and the content of the milk. We're going into the labs to make sure farmers, as you may know, get paid, dairy farmers get paid on what the quality and content of their milk is. So we need to verify that at the cheese plants and at the laboratories that they sample the milk at to make sure that this is indeed the content of their milk. But bigger than that, um, we are now the voice of farmers in Washington, D.C. So I mentioned Congress. We spend a lot of time down in D.C. We have a great relationship with USDA. But we're also working in other areas um, in community and, and, and with our customers. So we've got um, different watershed groups that we're working with and supporting and, and trying to get farmers to be continually improving and then and, and how to show that and tell their stories. And so it's, it's more than just sit back and, and collect the check and, and verify milk, right? We're out there continually trying to help our farmers improve. What are some issues that have been going on in D.C. or that you've been really concerned about that you've been working with those folks in D.C. to fix or change or adjust for producers? Sure. So we talked about dairy labeling, right? You know, um, with the shakeup of the FDA, we're, we're still trying to get that uh, enforced, uh, what's there now. Appreciative of uh, our Senator Tammy Baldwin introducing some acts. Um, trying to get whole, whole milk back in schools. Uh, there was an act that came out there that we were pretty passionate about and, and continuing to support. Um, broader agriculture in general, I would say that the USMCA deal, the Mexico-Canada agreement, we need to get it done, and we need to get it done fast, right? Farmers have been, it doesn't matter what you're selling nowadays, <clears throat> there's not a lot of great commodity prices out there. So farmers need a win. Farmers need something to, to keep them going, uh, especially amid a, another, another long, drawn-out harvest season. We need a win for farmers. So the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement is, is a huge win for us. 
The, the last topic I'll, I'll touch on is the new Ag Labor Workforce Bill that just came out in the House. We're pretty encouraged to see bipartisan support down there for um, on the Ag Labor. As a dairy farmer, you know that we can't turn the cows off and go home uh, three months out of the year. We need year-round uh, sustainable workforce. So, and and everybody knows that there's not a lot of Americans that come knocking on our door looking to milk cows. So, but there are people that are willing to do it, and they're here and they're willing to do it. So we need to find a way to keep them here and and to bring in new help so that we can continue to expand our family businesses. You opened a lot of different doors there for a lot of issues that are impacting not just the dairy industry but all across agriculture. But I want to touch on the labor one because we see in a lot of other industries in the crop side of things especially we see it moving towards autonomy but with the dairy industry do you have that opportunity or do you see that happening where you move away from having people and having more machines that take out that need I mean it feels like we're at this point where it's uh, you know a turning point because we don't have the labor force but we need something to fill that void you know, I think as, as technology becomes more affordable, like anything, um, there will be less and less people used, right, just like any other. Um, and so Precision Ag is here to stay, right? We, we can take people out. Um, but there's definitely robotic milking machines going in every day, right, um, especially in certain regions of the country. But, you know, I'll bring it back to my farm. Um, we're a startup dairy. Uh, we don't have the equity, the cash available to start something. It's my dream. I love technology. I would do it in a heartbeat if, if we could afford it, right? And I think as the technology grows and improves, it, it'll be more affordable, and you'll definitely see more machines milking cows and um, and doing various tasks and, and, taking, and taking human error out of the equation, absolutely. What do you see for the future of the smaller dairy farmer as we see so many Chapter 12 bankruptcies being declared, especially in the parts of the country where dairy producers live? So western Wisconsin, I think um, my home state is probably top of nation uh, for bankruptcies, right? It's unfortunate. Um, why I'm still in business and still going is beyond me, right? I mean, you know, we work hard every day. My brother's with me on the farm. <clears throat> but, you know, I, I think that you have to be willing to adapt and, and try new things. Um, you know, everybody talks about being more efficient on your farm, right? And obviously, as a 40-cow dairy, you can't capture those same efficiencies as, as a larger dairy. So you have to you have to diversify. You have to you might have to take an off-farm job to, to supplement your income. If you're not willing to do that, then maybe you're not going to continue dairy farming. It, it's unfortunate. It guts me just as much as everybody else to see dairy farms going out. Diversity is always a strength, um, especially when you're talking to the milk buyers. You know, they don't want all their milk coming off of one dairy, if you think of it from a biosecurity standpoint or anything else. So um, it's it's unfortunate trend, and we've seen it before, right? Dairy always has these trends up and down, and, and our numbers have been declining for years and years. I think that um, despite... You know, I think we lost 600-plus dairy farms in Wisconsin over the last few years. Not all of it is bankruptcy. You know, there's there's a lot of farms that if I'm 55 years old and my kids aren't coming back to the farm, why should I continue to farm? You know, if you can't find that next generation, why continue to, to, to dig your hole? So um, 
we're on a dairy. We've got, between my brother and I, six kids, and number seven's on the way. So we're excited about the future of dairy and, and the direction that we can continue to go. Yeah, I think that, that next generation is really a problem across the industry. Final question for you. As you look at the future of the dairy industry, you mentioned it's you've seen the light at the end of the tunnel. So what's coming next? You know, as we continue to uh, be smarter on our farms, um, you know, we're continually addressing sustainability, whether that's economical or social or what. And to be sustainable is, is like we just talked about. We want to farm for that next generation. So if we're not continually improving our dairy and our industry to have something that can attract new talent as, as an industry, we won't be around in the future, right? And, and everybody in agriculture understands this. So we need to continue to improve and be sustainable so that we are here in the future, right? And so it's it's... There is definitely some some optimism, you know, from a price standpoint, but just, you know, emergent technologies and, and what we can do with an animal and what we know about an animal and, and what we're learning about soil and feeding animals. And there's always something new and exciting coming on. And um, on our dairy, I'm the cow guy and my brother's the field guy, but, you know, we're passionate about it all. And um, you have to be because if you sit on the couch and, and watch it happen, you're not going to be here in 10 years. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for cheering about your operation in Edge. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Well, great stuff there with Rodeo. I always love chatting with producers, especially those producers that are farming but also have, you know, a hand in either legislation or policy or putting together initiatives for farmers. I think it's great when those people step up to the plate and help make things better or try to make things better for their fellow farmers and ranchers. Yeah, you know, whether or not uh, we all agree with one another, at the end of the day, we're all in the same industry, all trying to make a living in tough economic times. So it's certainly great to see that, Delaney. If listeners want to get caught up on ways they can perhaps enhance their bottom line, they can always listen to past editions of the Ag News Daily podcast. Visit our website at agnewsdaily.com or visit us on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search for Ag News Daily, and we will be there. With that, Delaney, how should we let the people go? Let's let them go.